What should separate me from your love? What should separate me from your love? Adonai, you're my God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many children that you have given us in this church. We thank you for making them beautiful and cheerful and lovely and so joyful. We thank you for the song that they have performed for us and for you, Father. And we ask you, Father, to pull their hearts to you, to give them faith and to let them grow up as disciples and joyful children of yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. And now, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds that we understand what you wish to tell us. And would you please bless my words that they bring you joy and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So our sermon text this afternoon is Psalm 130. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem israel from all his iniquities this is the word of the lord and you may keep standing this is a song of ascent an ascent is an upwards movement as in going up a hill or climbing up a mountain in the book of Psalms, songs of ascent are psalms which the people of Israel sang when they went up to the holy mountain of Zion, Mount Zion, to the holy mountain of the Lord, the place where the Lord's temple was, that is, the place where the name of the Lord dwelt. For the Israelites, that was the place where they entered into the presence of the Lord to pray, to worship, to bring sacrifices, to plead for help and to seek forgiveness of sins. People living outside the city of Jerusalem would normally come to the temple in groups, groups of pilgrims, and they would go up the temple mount singing songs of ascent, like this one. And so Psalm 130 is a personal song and a personal prayer, but it's also a communal song and a communal 
prayer, and that's why I would like to read it again together with all of you. So let's read it again. Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And this is the word of the Lord, and now you may be seated. So this psalm begins with the supplication of a man or a group of people finding themselves in the depth. People who feel like being caught in a deep, dark hole, wherever they look, they are surrounded by steep walls. There's no way out. So this is a situation of distress and black despair. A situation from which there's no escape. The psalm does not tell us specifically what it is. And that's good because that means you are free to insert whatever you think of can put you into a deep black hole. You are free to insert a situation where you have been in a deep black hole in the past. Have you ever felt completely desperate? In this country, many people were completely desperate after the war when everything around them was destroyed. You guys don't remember this, but you may have seen pictures of the cities in the rural district completely flattened, destroyed by the war. Some of you back home in Africa may have been in situations of deep despair because there was no hope for a good life. Some of the people in this church have been on boats in the middle of the sea tossed about by wind and waves. Some of us have been threatened by human traffickers, and by thugs. And then there is despair connected to severe illnesses, to the loss of a loved one. Whatever it is that afflicts us, we do in life go through times of distress and despair. As Psalm 23 tells us, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the proper translation says, though I am constantly walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not just one time walk through that valley. The Bible says there are lots of these valleys in human life. It's part of our human condition ever since we rebelled against the Lord, our Creator. So the question is, what do we do in situations 
of despair? And the answer is we wail and we complain and we cry and we feel sorry about ourselves and about that terrible situation. And most of all, we think that we're being treated unfairly. Others should make good for our misery. The more we suffer, the more we despair, the more we focus on ourselves. The more we focus on ourselves and on our suffering and despair, the less it comes to mind, comes to our mind to pray to God. The great reformer John Calvin, of whom Pastor Tim is a great fan, and so am I, John Calvin writes about the beginning of this psalm. Whenever we enjoy peace and prosperity, we are very cold in prayer. Our hearts are infatuated in a state of security. In other words, our hearts are numb. Why? Because we think that when everything goes well, that's just what we deserve. And so, why pray to God? And then Calvin says, but in situations of adversity, which should quicken us and make us run to God, we are even more stupefied. We are, our hearts are even more numb. We think desperately about what we can do to get out of the deep, dark hole. And the more we think about it, the more we realize that we can't do anything. And the more we realize that we can't do anything, the more desperate we get. And so it's a vicious circle pulling us further and further down into the deep, dark hole. Being in a, in a deep, dark hole should drive us to prayer, but prayer doesn't come naturally to us. The Holy Spirit must turn our attention to God first and move us to cry out to him, out of the depth, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my supplication. This man and the community praying this psalm have been moved by the Holy Spirit to cry out to the Lord from the depth. And so it is truly a song of ascent, you know. It's a song going up from the depth of the hole up to the Lord. But there is no ascent without being there having been a descent first. The Holy Spirit coming down from heaven and moving us to pray to God turning our attention away from ourselves and turn it to God instead. Turning our attention away from the fact that we can't help ourselves and turning it towards the fact that the Lord can help us. The Holy Spirit must first bring us to the point of crying out to God. And in that sense, it is a, it is a cry of liberation. The Holy Spirit makes us free to look to God and cry out to Him. We're still in the deep, dark hole, but we are free to cry out to God for help.
Now, what should we plead for? Naturally, we think that we should cry out to God and say, get me out of this deep, dark hole quickly. Because we still think that we deserve better than being in a deep, dark hole. But note what this man in the community praying this psalm say to God. They are not saying, Lord, get us out of here quickly. What they're saying is, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The key word is iniquities. And so the cry to God is a confession of guilt. What's behind it is saying, Lord, we have sinned against you. Lord, we are guilty of breaking your holy law and your commandments. Lord, we have rebelled against you, following our own judgments instead of yours. And if you, Lord, mark our iniquities, how can we stand? Now, to mark iniquities means to keep an account of them, to write them in a book. So they're saying, if you, Lord, keep a record of all the sins we have committed during our lives, who could stand? The question re refers to the Lord's judgment day. When the Lord will demand every human being that has ever lived to give a full account of their lives. On that day, God will call you to account. God will demand from you to give an account of everything you ever did and everything you didn't do. Everything you ever said, everything you didn't say. And in the book of Revelation, this is illustrated as saying, the Lord will open the book and there it's all written. It's a written account of everything you've ever done and said and not done it and not said. The prophet Joel says about that day, the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can stand it? It's the day when we will be judged again according to God's own law and commandments. And as in verse 3 of the psalm, the question, who can stand it, begs a negative answer. Nobody can stand it. None of us will be able to stand it. This is the Lord's verdict on all of us. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not a single human being will be able to face the Lord in his judgment and say, I'm righteous. Not you and neither me. Judged by that standard, the Lord's commandments, the Lord's law, we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And in the context of the this, of this psalm, the point of this confession is to say, judged by the standard of God's law and God's commandments, we deserve to be in a deep, dark hole. That's where we belong. The black despair we find ourselves in is the right result of our constant 
rebellion against God. Now that sounds depressing, doesn't it? But it's not the last word. But people, this word has to be said before the last word can be said, because otherwise the last word is empty. You can't understand it. Now, what is the last word? The last word is, there is forgiveness with you, O Lord. Forgiveness. The Hebrew word forgiveness used in this text is one that the word of God uses exclusively for the Lord. We have many words in Hebrew that we translate as to forgive. This one is only used for the Lord. On the one hand, it is the kind of forgiveness a king grants his subjects. Now, the mark of a king is that he is above and the people are below, right? And so this is not the forgiveness they are that Sibyl grants me when I have stepped on her toes and she says, I forgive you, because we're on the same plane. In this forgiveness that the psalm talks about, there is the Lord far above us, and here we are, and the Lord grants us forgiveness. It is his mercy. He is in infinitely superior to us, and he is our righteous judge. He has the right and the power to condemn and to forgive according to his law and his commandments. The sense of superiority of the Lord over us is expressed in the prayer King Solomon prayed at the inauguration of the temple. Now remember, King Solomon was already a pretty powerful king. Okay? So here is King Solomon and there are the people. And what does King Solomon say? He says, Lord, may you hear the supplication of your servant, or better translated, may you hear the supplication of your slave. The king calls himself a slave, a rightless person. No rights, no standing, no glory. So the Lord is up there. King Solomon is there, and there are the people, okay? And so King Solomon says, Lord, may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray to you towards this place, the temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That is the forgiveness the psalm talks about. It comes from the Lord to us. And on the other hand, the Lord's forgiveness is much more encompassing and much more complete than when you forgive another person. When we forgive some, something to somebody, something always remains, a bitter memory, a grudge, something the person who wronged us did not yet ask us to forgive and it keeps sticking in our minds but god forgives everything and he forgives completely and the sins he forgives do not exist anymore 
But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. Now, how did the man and the community praying this know this? The answer is they knew it because the Lord himself promised it in the covenant he made with his people. When the Lord gave his holy law to Moses, he declared of himself, I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I show mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. And he says, I, the Lord, am merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in truth. If you read the law of God, you will see that he gave many commandments, commandments to confess sin, connected with the promise to forgive the sins if the people confess them. This coming Tuesday, the Jews all over the world celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which literally means the day of cleaning. All the sins are cleaned away. The Lord commanded in Leviticus 16 to set apart one special day of the year for fasting, confessing of sins, repentance, and sacrifice. And the whole commandment, the whole chapter in, in Leviticus 16 ends with this promise. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. They are washed away. They no longer exist. And the same promise holds for us. In Luke 18, Jesus tells us the story of a notorious sinner in Jerusalem, a tax collector. Tax collectors were regarded as sinners because they worked for the Romans, the enemies of the Jews. And so there is this man, and he's standing in the temple, beating his breast, his eyes cast down, praying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said about him, this man went down to his house justified. His sins had been forgiven. He was restored to righteousness. In the same vein, the Apostle John assures us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so people, to realize that you're a sinner and that your many iniquities make you guilty before God is not a reason of despair. If you confess them, the Lord himself cleanses you of all your sin. And he does that with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a propitiation for us, as the Apostle John continues to say. Now, what is a propitiation? It is a means of achieving liberation and reconciliation to God. It is like a sum of money 
paid for our guilt. God is no longer angry with us. He no longer sees our sin and our guilt. In Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. Now, the psalm says, In you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The purpose of the Lord's forgiveness of your sin is that the Lord may be feared. Now, that's a bit of a surprising statement, isn't it? William Shakespeare, the great English poet, a man who knew the hearts of men better than all of us, William Shakespeare once wrote, nothing emboldens us to sin so much as mercy. Nothing emboldens us to sin so much as forgiveness. That seems logical, doesn't it? If you don't, if there's no fear of punishment, why not sin a little more? If we don't have to fear punishment, why not be even a little more depraved than we already are? But, you know, the fear of the Lord is not being scared of punishment. The fear of the Lord is to revere him and to love him. It is a sense of awe and submission caused by realizing his incredible power, his infinite righteousness, and his endless love by which he forgives our sins. The fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement that he is so much wiser and so much better than we are that we feel compelled to walk in all his ways, to serve him with all our hearts, and to keep his commandments and statutes, as it says in Deuteronomy 10. And so the purpose of the Lord's forgiveness of our sins is not that we sin more. It is that we love him more. We give him more honor. We submit to him more than we would do otherwise. When God assures you of the forgiveness of your sin, the purpose is not that you feel relieved and free to do more. It is that you glorify him above else, above all of them. None fears the Lord like those who have recognized their own sin and experienced God's loving forgiveness. As Jesus once said, the person to, him, to whom much has been forgiven will love the Lord very much. And the person to whom little has been forgiven loves little. Luke 7. And so the question to you is, have you been forgiven much or have you been forgiven little? Do you love much or do you love little? And you know what? The answer to that question depends on you alone. It depends on you alone because we are all equally terrible sinners in the eyes of our Lord. The question is, how much sin 
do we recognize and confess to the Lord? How honest are we to ourselves and to our God in confessing our sin? If you recognize much sin in your life and confessed it, then much has been forgiven you and you will love much. But if you're proud and you think, oh, there's just a little wrong in my life and I can fix that, you've been forgiven little and you will love little. Now at this point, the man and the community praying the psalm are still in the deep dark hole, but their situation is not the same anymore. They have turned to the Lord, they have cried out to him, they have confessed their sin and acknowledged that they deserve to be in that desperate situation. They have remembered that there is forgiveness with the Lord, but people, if there's forgiveness, then there's a way out of the deep dark hole, because if there's forgiveness, the cause of that affliction has been wiped out. And if the cause has been wiped out and the sin has been forgiven, then the Lord will act to the benefit of his people. He will now act on their behalf and bring them out of their affliction. It is, it is his covenant love to redeem them. And so there is now hope, not despair. But the people of the Lord, although they have the assurance of God's love, the assurance that he will redeem them, they do not have his power at their own command. If they could command God's power, what would they say? They would say, well, Lord, now you've forgiven my sin. Now quickly, get me out of this hole. But they must accept the Lord's speed of saving them. In other words, although they can be completely sure that the Lord will redeem them, they must trust him if he doesn't do it immediately. They must, as the psalm calls it, they must wait for the Lord. The Hebrew word to wait in this text is a combination between hope and patience. I wait for the Lord means I know for sure that he will help me and he will do it at the time he has decided and therefore I trust that he will do it and I wait for it patiently. Now is that hard? Oh yeah. One of the hardest things in life. We can feel it from the repetitions and the growing intensity of the te text. I wait. My soul waits, which means my entire personality is focused on waiting. I wait for the Lord. I wait for his word. I wait more than those who watch for the morning. Think of the night watch in an ancient city, men standing on the city walls overlooking the countryside to see if there are any enemies coming, trying to climb over the wall or to sneak into the city and cause havoc. 
the night is very long for them. And the fear of enemies and the responsibility they have for the city wear them down. They wish that the morning would finally break and bring light and security. So much and more the man and the community praying this psalm wish that the, the Lord would finally act and save them. It is hard for us to wait for the Lord. But you know, that's what faith is all about. To trust that eventually he will do it. Now, how can a weak man or a community of weak men endure such a weight? After all, they are still in the deep dark hole. Looks like nothing has changed for them yet. And the answer is, they need an assurance. They need an insurance that their waiting will not be in vain, an, insur an, an assurance that the Lord is faithful and trustworthy. And for us humans, more than anything else, we get that assurance from experience. We need to remember past experiences of God's forgiveness and subsequent saving from affliction. But the trouble is our own memories are weak. We don't remember situations so well, and memory always borders on imagination. And so, therefore, God gives us people who God gives us people who speak to us, and they give us that assurance. Someone who reminds us that God has granted His people forgiveness and redemption in the past, and therefore we can trust him today that he will do it again. And that's the sense of the last two verses of the psalm. In these verses, someone now speaks to the man or the community praying the psalm. We can imagine they are climbing up the hill, they've been singing the song, and now as they come near to the temple, a priest comes out, and talks to them, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Continue to wait patiently until he decides to save you. And he continues with a declaration of the goodness of God with the Lord is mercy, and in him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel. The Hebrew word for mercy is covenant love. It's God's promise and willingness to do good to his people that he gave his people when he made the covenant with them. The Hebrew word for redemption means ransom or deliverance. For the Israelites, it points to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the most powerful historical proof of the covenant love of God. Based on this remembrance and the long history that followed with the Lord, the speaker turns to the future and assures them that the Lord will again redeem his people from all their iniquities, which is to say he will 
redeem them from all the calamities, all the adversities, all the harm caused by their sin. You're still in that deep hole, but wait. The Lord will pull you out. And so the psalm kind of resounds a triad of qualities of the Lord. Now, you know what a triad is? The triad is three sounds that sound well together. Da, da, da. That's a triad. Three sounds that go well together. A triad of qualities characterizing the Lord. Forgiveness, love, and redemption. Together, that's the foundation of Israel's faith in the Lord. And it's really our foundation of faith in the Lord. And the people respond with the triad. Da, da, da. Three sounds that go well together. A triad of repentance, love, and fear. And so it's the same for you and for me. In the midst of black despair, when we find ourselves in the deep black hole waiting for the Lord, is terribly hard for us. One of my daughters recently went into a mental clinic, and she was suffering terribly. And after two days, she said, why is God not doing it? And she, for days and days, she kept saying that. I don't understand why God is not yet doing anything. And so you realize she believes in the Lord. She is sure that God will help her in the clinic. But it's so hard to wait. And isn't it for all of us? We need to hear the voice of someone assuring us that waiting for the Lord is not in vain. Now, we have greater proof of the goodness and love of God than those praying this psalm two and a half thousand years ago when they went up to the temple. We have a proof with a name, and the name is Jesus Christ. By your faith in him, your sins are wiped out. Your guilt is forgiven. Your righteousness before God is restored. You're a child of God, as we heard in the scripture lesson. From Ephesians 2. And so now wait for him and walk in his ways. And yet, knowing all this, when we're in a desperate situation, we find it so hard to wait. Listen then to this assurance given to you by the Apostle Paul God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him give us all things? Just think about that. God went all in for you. God gave everything he had to save you from eternal death and going to hell. He gave his son Jesus Christ as payment for your sin and for your guilt to achieve your redemption. Now, do you think that God now suddenly has become a miser and he says, oh, I have lots, lots of good things in store, but I'll keep them back. That doesn't make any sense, does it? If he already went all in for you, 
how much more will he give you the good things that he still has in store for you? He who saved you from hell and eternal death by giving you faith in his son, Jesus Christ, he will deliver you from all despair and calamity. And so people repent, love God, trust him, and wait for him. And he will do it. Amen. And so let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for reminding us that you are faithful and trustworthy. And with you there is forgiveness. What a wonderful assurance this is. And Father, as much as we, we are in awe hearing this word that with you is forgiveness, we love you. And we trust you. And we honor you and worship you. And Lord, whenever we find ourselves in despair, send us your Holy Spirit to turn our attention to you and to cry out to you. And send us people, Lord, who give us this assurance. What should separate me from your love? What should separate me from your love? I don't know.